from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're talking with Samuel Hewlett, a user onboarding expert from beautiful Portland, Oregon. He runs a popular website called useronboard.com, where he deconstructs the initial experience of popular apps and services. I first met Samuel in Amsterdam when we were both speaking at the TNW Europe conference. We clicked immediately, and we bonded over our shared love of great design and smart design process. The product teams that learn faster are the, going to be the ones that win. And so if you're getting bogged down into the minutia of, you know, pixel perfect design, so to speak, then you're probably not, your iteration cycles are going to be longer and your net learning is thus going to be less or at least take longer. And so to be really quick and agile, you need to have that nimble flexibility that comes with just getting things out there and testing the core assumptions and not spending a lot of time really highly articulating something that might not be worth being said. If you want to know what goes into an excellent first-time user experience, listen in and discover how this tech-savvy designer became a world-class expert in user onboarding. Welcome to the Getting to Alpha podcast, Samuel. Let's get started with a whirlwind tour of your background. How'd you get started in design and tech? Yeah, so I, uh, I've i been working in the software realm for over a decade now. And I initially hung out my shingle as a developer uh, or like kind of like a custom WordPress theme coder. And... I would wind up coming in at the end of a waterfall design process where a lot of the, uh, basically all of the decisions had already been made. And I would just kind of inherit a PSD and, and was told to kind of make it clickable. And uh, there were a lot of times where I would notice some pretty basic usability issues or like, do we really need another homepage carousel here? Or things hadn't really been thought through. But by that time, the, the, the deadline was looming. And the budget had already been used up and people were essentially saying, well, all right, we're just going to run with this anyway. And so I would kind of grit my teeth and code it out and eventually really wanted to come in earlier in that decision making process and decided that what I was really most passionate about was user experience design and that I should start uh, getting as much experience in that field as I could. And eventually was able to call myself a full fledged user experience designer and then realized that there was still one other piece that was missing, which was for me to be able to know that I was getting better as a designer and the general notion of coming in and making something nicer or friendlier, but not necessarily knowing if it was better or not and served the people's needs, uh, people who's using the website's needs better. And, and so that led me to want to take a more uh, empirical, experimental, measured approach, which lends itself really nicely to workflows and user onboarding is, you know, one of the, the, the key workflows. And so that's when I decided to get even more specific and just focus on user onboarding. And when was that? The user onboarding part was about a year and a half ago. What was it that prompted you to start creating and sharing publicly user onboarding teardowns for you're very well known for that now? How'd that get started? I decided to self-publish a book, and I wasn't really sure what the book was about, but I had this kind of high-minded design philosophy sort of as a topic. 
And I put up a landing page and wanted to get people basically to build up an email subscriber base so that I would know that I had people to sell the book to once I had written it and realized that I needed to get people to go to that page. And so I was thinking about, you know, guest blogging or things like that. And I really was not known outside of, you know, some designer friends that I had at the time, uh, really didn't have any following or anything whatsoever, and realized that as a consultant, one thing that I would do on a user experience project was would go in and take screenshots of the different uh, parts of a workflow and then uh, mark them up with annotations and things like that. And I was like, oh, if only I could share one of these, I bet people could kind of get value out of it. And then I wouldn't have to go to the trouble of writing a guest post and things like that. And realized also that it would be not great to share something that had been commissioned without the expectation of it being made public, of course. And at that point, I realized, but there are thousands of companies who haven't paid me to do anything for them. And I could just do that for free and post it online and see what happens. So that was the the genesis of the teardowns. Got it. So I've enjoyed reading uh, a lot of your recent posts about how you think about product development. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see first-time creators making in the early stages of designing and testing their ideas? The fundamental design error, in my opinion, is not being really clear on how you make people more successful or how you improve the the life situation that they're in, uh, that essentially... When you are signing up to use a product, it's it's kind of an expression of hope where you're thinking, okay, me with this product in my life will be better than me right now. And aligning the entire experience around that and developing people's skills and demonstrating how much more successful they are, uh, to my mind, is is the approach to take. And anytime that you're creating something that is out of alignment with what people are, are trying to accomplish or anytime that you approach design from a standpoint of uh, imposing your will on the world more so than harnessing the motivations that people already have, I, I tend to see that as being a, 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 a misstep, I guess I would say. Got it. When you're able to be in charge of a project, how do you approach early testing and iteration? Iteration of design or, or just in general? Well, both. Iteration of design, but then also iteration of, say, an MVP. My particular approach is to get as much qualitative information as I possibly can. And that a lot of times will take the two primary forms. One are surveys at key moments in people's lives. And the other is in-depth in-person interviews uh, or Skype interviews or things along those lines. And so the surveys, I uh, take a, a jobs to be done mindset on and look at the moment of switching, which is to say, instead of surveying or asking people what they thought of something when they've been using it for three years or what they think they might find useful about something that they're not currently using, in both of those cases, it's kind of a speculative or trying to remember, but you know the, 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 uh, the concrete has kind of set or doesn't exist. And I like to go and write the moment when somebody is in the process of switching to a different product and essentially asking them, what do you hope your life will be like with this product in it? What are you looking to accomplish with it? What was the external situation that motivated you to make a change with whatever it was that you were doing before anyway? And just get a really clear idea on, on around what they're they're hoping to accomplish and achieve and then use that as the inspiration for the the design of the product itself. How do you find people who are at that moment? 
Uh, it can be tricky. There, you know, there's certainly uh, areas where you could just say, uh, you know, if it's your own product, then that makes it very, very easy. If you are looking to get other people's products uh, or to to find people with a switching moment there, it can be something where you're just making it known that if somebody's thinking about switching or is about to switch, then you could, you know, just make that relationship warmer. Or you could also ask, you know, if you have access to a wide array of people, you can ask of people who have recently switched, for example, within the last month or two, that the the concrete, quote unquote, would still be pretty wet at that point as well. What about if it's a product that doesn't yet exist? That's where I was coming from, that you would be, if you think of your competition as whatever someone is going to have to stop doing in order to start using your product, then you you can essentially run those switch interviews for whatever that is. So and it beyond just saying, well, my product doesn't exist yet, so I can't find out anything about the problem space. You can also look at, you know, and it doesn't have to be your quote unquote competitors like like the other software offerings that, you know, if you're trying to come up with like an invoicing software, you don't have to look at other invoicing products. There's a pretty good chance that your primary competition would be, you know, Word documents being emailed to people and things like that. So you can look at those kind of workflows as your initial source of inspiration. Right. When you are working on very early in a product, how do you figure out which ideas to pursue and which ideas to throw out, you know, when you've got a lot of them? How do you go about dealing with that funnel and vetting ideas again during the early stages? I guess it depends. Uh, from an early stage standpoint, I find that it's really helpful to get something in people's hands and see how they respond to it. Mm-hmm. Ryan Singer, who is a designer at Basecamp, or, or the lead designer at Basecamp, I believe, is someone I've really looked up to for a long time. And he has this metaphor of th- that you can speculate on a, on a light bulb all day long, but you're not going to know whether it works or not until you plug it in. And I find that to be a similar thing that it's great to go out and get, and and I almost consider it necessary to go out and get qualitative research information early in the, in the process and use that to, to inspire what you're going to create. But at some point you do have to create a minimal version of it at least and get in people's hands and see how they respond. So it's largely a question of when you're talking about deciding what to include and what to throw out, thinking of your product as as solving a problem and the absolute core essence of it i like to stay really 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 uh narrow as far as testing not a lot of variables at the same time or building out a, a rich array of features and instead just say what's the quickest path from a to b in solving this problem for someone and can i confirm that that's a problem that they even want to solve or that they are even finding relevant or know what it is in their life uh, at all Right. And once you've confirmed that it's a problem they want to solve, figuring out how to build an MVP is something that I think a lot of people struggle with. And I don't think there's any one answer, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. So once you've got there, you said, okay, we've done through qualitative research, say, we found that, yes, this is a problem people care about and want to solve. We've done the initial analysis. Now we're putting the M into the MVP, right? The minimal. Sure. I find that many designers have like their own little tricks they've evolved over time for figuring out the M, you know, what that minimal thing is. Do you have any heuristics or rules of thumb? Uh, like as far as just defining what the scope of the of the product is or or in the process of, of actually producing it or? Well, really defining what it is and then producing it together. Those are related. But I don't know how much you work at really early stage versus coming in to an existing product and like, fixing the onboarding. Yeah. So a lot of times I'm coming in 
you know, my as a consultant, I'm coming into products that already exist and kind of looking to reverse engineer how what problem that the, that the software solves and what needs to be presented to people first from an onboarding perspective. I, I typically really don't recommend investing a lot in in formal onboarding parts of your software when you're really early stage because you're probably not 100% clear on what that absolute must-have experience core workflow is or even which parts of it you should introduce to people right at the beginning. A lot of times when people quote-unquote design their onboarding experience, it's in a capacity where they're kind of just maybe working on pretty shaky assumptions about what people should be doing right away in the product. And a lot of times they skew towards pointing out features more so than getting people to accomplish things. And even just knowing what that what those things that people should be accomplishing are can be a, a really big leap forward. So that's the capacity that I typically work in. As far as coming up with an MVP or, or just an entire product entirely, that's typically not a huge focus of mine. And to circle back to the not investing in onboarding right away, really getting a clear idea of what people are struggling with and what they're looking to accomplish and helping them basically be the onboarding. You you yourself should be the onboarding and being assistive to people until it gets to be so clear what it is that people need to do that then you can kind of replace yourself with software. I recommend exactly the same thing. So I'm glad to hear you say that. (laughs) Um, I've actually got a chart about when you focus on onboarding and when you focus on core loop. And let's dive into that a little bit. So when is the right time in the product development cycle to focus on onboarding? You just outlined beautifully why very early is the wrong time. Mm -hmm. But when is just the right time to focus on onboarding? The approach that I really advocate is, like I mentioned, to to be the onboarding at the beginning, not only because you can shepherd the individual users through and help them, you know, find the value in your product and so on and so forth, but it's also very much a two-way street or even more value is coming to you because you're getting all of this feedback. And the feedback, in my experience, comes in two main varieties. One is just discovering where people are tripping up, just points of friction in your workflows or simple usability problems or, oh, I never thought that that they would, you know, decide to click that button at that time. I should do something about it. And then you can use that to incrementally go in and and resolve the usability issues and, and kind of sand off the jagged edges of your software. So that's one source. But then also the other kind of feedback that you're getting is just around what people are hoping to accomplish and what their aspiration for bringing your your product into their life is. And at that point, once you become really, really clear on where their mindset is and what they're hoping will happen, that's when you can formalize your onboarding experience in your software around this actual knowledge that you've been able to get straight from the horse's mouth in the moment. Which is great, but people aren't always able to do that. I've noticed, like with certain mobile apps, it can be really tricky. Have you developed any tricks and tips for learning more about your users? Uh, I noticed in some of your writing, you mentioned that there's a whole grab bag of things that, you know, a designer researcher can do to uh, learn more about their users. What What are some of your favorite ones? The two that really stand out to me are being present and having live chat up. It's really amazing what people will reach out and and let you know about if you're just maintaining that presence there. And once again, it, you, it, it's helpful to be able to help that one individual person out, but then you can also take that information and improve your experience overall for all the untold thousands of people that will follow that person. But again, like you mentioned, if you have a mobile app, for example, that can be pretty tricky. 
The other thing that I recommend is to, especially in the early days, you're probably not being inundated with signups, is to just sit there and watch people as they sign up. If you have any kind of visibility whatsoever in, you know, new user created, user accomplished X, user user accomplished Y, and just see how far they get in that very first session and where they drop off. There was a, a enterprise software company that I worked with where I would just literally watch as new users were created and watch their activity in like a database. And if they hadn't done a certain set of things, which were kind of like the recipe for a successful user, then within a half an hour, I would send them a personal email and say, hey, I just got an alert that you... Uh, signed up and it looks like you haven't done this yet. It did, was there something that you found tricky about it or can I be helpful in any way? Do you want to jump on a screen share and work through it? And I mean, that was just an insanely valuable source of, of inspiration and, and product feedback. Wow. That's a great story. Do you do much prototyping yourself? Like when you're throwing together some sort of prototype, as you say, get something in people's hands. Mm-hmm. As part of a project, you mentioned you had a developer background. Do you have particular yeah, so, tools or particular styles that you like to use for prototyping? Yeah, yeah. I really like to, to keep as much of the design experience out of Photoshop as possible. It, it, it to my mind, is, is not really representative of, of an online experience, but it gives you the tools to get really nitty-gritty with the pixels, which is typically a, a very beautifully rendered box with Laura Mipsum inside it to me is is uh, putting the finish on something that doesn't really exist yet. And so I like to go f- identify what are the workflows that we're going to assist people through and match up screens or screen states in a very high level, just marker at a whiteboard kind of fidelity around, you know, this is the key workflow. These are the complementary ones. If someone decides to exit at this point, then, you know, kind of coming up with like a logic tree, basically, and matching up screens to those different beats and going from whiteboards to either Keynote, which is something that I really like to use. And for whatever reason, I I use it for so many different things. And for whatever reason, I much, much prefer that if I am doing graphics to something like Photoshop or Illustrator, or preferably going straight from whiteboard to to really low fidelity working prototype and code. And then once again, just getting it in people's hands long before you've put like a lot of polish and things like that into it. Talk to a little bit more about that, about why it's so important not to polish those early prototypes. Well, because the polish isn't going to make or break your design, most likely. And if so, the polish is probably coming through in personality, like the copy that you're using, not so much the aesthetics. If you take an approach of creating an MVP from, or if you take on the perspective that an MVP is something that you're creating to validate your assumptions, your assumption is probably not that making it really pretty is the the killer feature, quote unquote, or that, you know, making it look nicer doesn't help you validate that you have a business model and something that's valuable to people. Got it. Unless, I, I mean, I could kind of see maybe it's a product that really wants to differentiate on design and making that a core assumption. But even in that scenario, it still has to be you know, it, it has to do something for someone. And that part, to my mind, is is always a lot riskier than will will people be pleased when they look at it. Well, and when you polish something, you grow attached to it. And it's oh, yeah. hard, you know, I found that it's slower. Of course, it's slower to iterate when you polish, but 
the team gets much more attached to the design that they've polished, and then it's harder to hear the feedback. Have you yeah, ever whole, noticed that? Yeah, like the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, like that. Yep, totally. And it's also just something where the 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 product teams that learn faster are the, going to be the ones that win. And so if you're getting bogged down into the minutia of pixel-perfect design, so to speak, then your iteration cycles are going to be longer and your net learning is thus going to be less or at least take longer. And so to be really quick and agile, you need to have that nimble flexibility that comes with just getting things out there and testing the core assumptions and not spending a lot of time really highly articulating something that might not be worth being said. Exactly. Everyone that we've been talking to uses some sort of collaboration tool to work with their teams. And part of my purpose for doing this is to create the podcast. Part of it is also to create great, juicy content for the teams I'm currently working with and getting to Alpha, my mm-hmm. design program. And they all are very interested in collaboration tools and they're using Slack because I use it for the program. And it's new for most of them, not for all of them. So I'm interested in what tools you know, for like Skype and Slack and GoToMeeting and any other, interested in how you collaborate, what kind of tools you use, what kind of practices you found work well. Sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, Slack is way up there. It's pretty crazy how quickly it inserted itself as as this sort of must-have piece of software. But yeah, it's it would be almost unthinkable to to try to take that on and with a different, well, I mean, I guess there's like hip chat and things like that, but that, that whole manner of communicating has been really vital. I also will use email when it's something that can be more asynchronous. And I'm a really big fan of Google Hangouts or video chat in general. I tend to not use Skype too much and I'm not really sure why, but yeah, those are, those are largely the ones that I use. I'm not really aware of any group collaboration software that would let you sketch in real time or things along those lines uh, that's really well executed but i would love to to discover that uh, if and when that ha- comes along if not now well it'll probably show up as an integration in slack perhaps rather than a thing on its own yeah could be or i could see you know just giving people markers in a hangout or in skype could be really useful as well so what are you using slack for so i'm also building my own software and it, it will actually it's in kind of what I would call an MVP state right now. And so I'm teaming up with a couple other engineers and I'm working with them primarily over Slack to just either schedule conversations or to just stay on the same page or give status updates and so on and so forth. And so so far, that's been 100 percent remote. And do you find Slack meets your needs pretty well? Yeah, I would say so. It's, it seems to do the job pretty well. I haven't gotten crazy with integrations and custom emojis and things like that, but just as a asynchronous or non-asynchronous con- communication tool, it's been essential. Recently, I've talked to several people who've used both Slack and HipChat mm-hmm. and really prefer HipChat. And like feature for feature, it's almost identical to Slack, but yeah. Slack captured the market. Yeah, it's really interesting. I I, I wonder how much having a warm personality had to do with that. It certainly had some to do with it. Who knows how much? I think there was a lot of good marketing too. Hmm. But yeah, they had the warm personality. Let's put it this way. That wasn't the only thing that did it. I right? would I would be highly skeptical of anyone pointing to a single thing that, that no. was the cause for Slack's success. I'm constantly asked about my thoughts on gamification as they relate to user onboarding. 
And I find gamification to be a really problematic term because I think a lot of people associate it with points and badges and things along those lines, which are possibly helpful, but more as like an accelerant to an already well-aligned workflow than as something that you can slap on after the fact and suddenly your irrelevant product becomes a must-have in someone's life or something along those lines. And so from the, the term applied game design, I really like that because you're able to say, let's look at design from a perspective of providing people with skills and understanding their emotional state in a particular moment and understanding what's psychologically driving them and create an experience that maybe alternates challenge and mastery or demonstrates their progress or things along those lines, sort of quote unquote naturally within the product experience, as opposed to throwing almost carelessly some points or badges or things along those lines that that are essentially very shallow as far as moving the needle and getting people to accomplish different things and, and getting them to go through workflows and things along those lines. How are you inspired by game design in your own work? Yeah, that's something that, that's been really kind of mind-blowing, especially like with the Daniel Cook talks and, and articles that he's written of looking at product design as it, where product design and game design overlap, to my mind, is that you are providing people with skills and you're developing their capabilities in the world virtually or IRL or whatever. And the idea of aligning your entire product experience around the progression of their skillfulness and the, how do I best put it? Um, Their journey toward mastery. Sure, their journey toward (laughs) mastery. But there's also an element where it's like looking at the outcome of your product as not somebody, you know, activating a feature, but it's them actually accomplishing something and becoming a better person in some way. So the skills are like, there are capabilities for for being able to do something, but your product is also an actuator for them actually doing it, right? Well, that's great. I feel very much the same way. You can be successful in getting people to do things in like a Skinner box kind of way. Like you can manipulate people into doing things uh, online, but A, you don't have a lot of leverage because those things will wear off and people will decide that they don't really enjoy being manipulated (laughs) into doing things that maybe they they don't want to do. And B, it's just so much better to harness their real motivation and amplify it as opposed to undermining it or, or, or subverting it in some kind of way to get them to do something that they might not have been super interested in. And so when you take an approach of product of design as upgrading skills and encouraging accomplishments, then you're really able to take the natural motivation and energy that someone is bringing to the experience and really deliver on it and use that to your advantage as opposed to trying to uh, constantly steer people towards something that maybe isn't really highly aligned with what they're looking to do. That's really well put. Oh, thanks again. What is your superpower as a designer? What projects light you up the most? Well, uh, user onboarding projects for sure do. I, I really like to work with teams that understand the value of user experience design inherently. I, I find that on my consulting projects, I can come into work with a company, seems like really two main flavors, and you can tell right away where some people are looking to hire UX design because 
it's not inherently valued or intrinsically valued in the company. And they kind of want to check that box or they've heard good things about it and they want to to be able to, you know, slap it onto their product experience versus working with companies who find user experience design super valuable across the entire organization and are looking to get even better at it. And I used to think that going into companies where their user experience was really neglected, like, oh, you're going to love working with me. We have so much, you know, look at all this low hanging fruit. You know, I can really get you really far. And I used to think that working with companies that really had a uh, priority for user experience was kind of intimidating. And like, who am I to say that, you know, MailChimp should do what I say or things along those lines. And I found it to be completely the opposite, that companies that really have kind of seen the light really want to get better and are really enthusiastic about putting the pedal even further to the floor on their experience. Whereas companies that kind of, you know, to my mind, don't really get it, don't tend to really value what I'm able to bring to the table. So for those kind of reasons, those are the projects that really light me up the most. Awesome. So where is your focus these days and what's coming up on the horizon for you? I know you have a new book out. Yep. So I have the elements of user onboarding. That's uh, the book that I, that's kind of where we started in the conversation that Mm -hmm. I self-published that, that got me to start doing the teardowns. I'm continuing to come out with new teardowns and I am also doing quite a lot of consulting. And as I mentioned, I'm, I'm working on an MVP of a, of a software offering to help people with their onboarding as well. Ah, very exciting. When will that be something that we can learn more about? Well, if you go to useronboard.com slash beta, there is a survey that you can fill out to get on the early access list. And I am using that to to slowly roll it out to uh, batches of, of initial customers. And that would, that would be the, the number one way to get there. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a distinct pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim. The shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.